Hi, everybody. Together with Apple Books, I wanted to welcome you to the Oprah's Book Club podcast. This eight-part series is devoted to my latest book club selection, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. If you don't have your copy yet, really easy to get one right now on Apple Books. You can also get the fantastic audio version if you would rather listen. So I'm joined by Professor Isabel Wilkerson and readers for our eight-part discussion on cast. I feel in my bones that the ideas presented in this book are so eye-opening and so revolutionary. I just wanted to share them with as many people as possible. So remember to post your comments on all of our Oprah Book Club social pages, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I love reading what you all have to say. So hello, Isabel. Hi. Great to be here. In Cass, you describe how the pillars serve as a kind of invisible framework to hold up the whole caste system. Can you give a quick explanation of pillars, what we're talking about here as we move through the eight pillars of caste? Well, pillars are the shared characteristics that are endemic in any hierarchy that we're calling caste. They are the eight similarities, parallel requirements that I discovered and compiled in the process of doing the research for this book. And these eight pillars together would be evident in any caste system. So last time we discussed pillar one, how a caste system is based in religion, founded actually in religion. And now we're on pillar two, which is called heritability, why it's necessary for the members of the dominant caste to believe that they have inherited by birthright their places on the ladder of caste. Isabel, can you explain what heritability means? Well, heritability dates back in the United States to the founding of the country and the colonies, in which after there was this bipolar population of English colonists primarily and enslaved Africans, there had to be, or they discovered or desired to have a distinction between them. And they identified who could be seen as what based upon the mother and who had legal rights on the basis of the mother. They were breaking with English tradition and the traditions around the world, which generally, not all, but, but many, are based upon the rights and privileges of the child accrue from the father, as in India. But in the United States, the colonists broke from English law to establish that in the Virginia colony, the child inherited the status of the mother, which meant that for the women, for African women, who could end up being pregnant by any number of means because they had no rights, often were impregnated by men in the dominant caste, sometimes the people who owned them. Their children would then be enslaved because the mother was enslaved. And that is what set in motion a distinction in the American slavery system in which, unlike other systems, it was inherited and passed down through the generations. In fact, there were 12 generations of enslavement in the United States from 1619 until 1865. And so that is what established what was viewed as the permanent ranking at the bottom of the caste system for those who were enslaved. But it also assured the permanent or believed to be permanent uh, status of those at the, at the top. And that's one reason why the protection of, particularly in the South, of white women and what they could do, they were also hamstrung and, and restricted restricted because there was this need to protect whatever child might come from a white woman's experience. So that is heritability. 
I don't know about you all, was it eye-opening for you to read that because you understand, I understood so clearly why it was not in inheritance from the mother because if it was inheritance from the father, all of the slave owners who were impregnating the women, then those children would then have belonged to the upper caste or belonged to their, their caste. But instead, they changed the law to make it about the women for that very reason. Yes, so that what ended up happening is that any child of a woman of African descent would then, no matter what percentage of the child's background was African, meant that they were condemned to enslavement, which is how we get into the one-drop rule. And it didn't matter so much what the lineage was, it mattered whose body it came out of. And the mother, the mother's enslaved, subordinated position passed down to her children. And it gave an incentive to slaveholders to have as many children as they could with women who were enslaved because that would enrich themselves with more children that they can enslave. That's when you say that the U.S. law allowed slave owners to claim the children of enslaved black women as their property, and it created a system where black bodies and wombs were used for profit and for violent rape by the enslavers. So through your research on Pillar 2, you determined that caste is very different than social class. Let's talk about that. Yes, so if you're born to the subordinated group, and over time, the subordinated group has physical markers of their subordination. They were linked together. What we think of as race was linked with one's place in the caste system. Race was linked, if you saw a black person, that person was very likely enslaved. And if they were not enslaved and they were free, they still had very little in the way of rights. So the rights and privileges of an individual were linked to what you looked like. And that is why heritability became one of the central defining features of a caste system, because it is what identified you as being of a subordinated caste. That meant that no matter what you were doing, if you had an education, you still did not have the legal rights and privileges of others who were deemed as a dominant caste. And so class did not protect you from the disadvantages and the subjugation of caste. You know, a lot of people may be thinking, uh, slavery was hundreds of years ago, so what does that have to do with today? But because of cell phone cameras, we can now see the pillar of heritability in action. I mean, we're living through it right now. It seems like every week there's a new viral video of a white person inserting themselves or policing a black person, working out in a gym, going to their own apartment complex pool, trying to get into their own apartment, babysitting white children, jogging, and it goes on and on and on and on. And you actually had an incident in the Detroit airport. Want to tell us about that? Well, <laughs> Uh, it's, it's not a pleasant thought. I mean, I still, I, I'm still haunted by it. I was working out of the Chicago Bureau of the New York Times as a national correspondent, and as a result of that, I was traveling, uh, making day trips all the time to places in the, in the Midwest. I'd make a day trip to St. Louis, a day trip to Detroit. This particular day, I was making a day trip to Detroit. It had arrived early that morning, and because it was a day trip I was returning that evening, I didn't have a lot of luggage. I just had my bag and my notebook and that sort of thing, and I was you know, racing to catch the rental car bus. And I, as I was walking ahead to get to the rental car bus, I noticed that there were these people behind me who were tracking me. They ended up being on both sides of me, a man and a woman, 
who were essentially trailing me as I was walking. And I looked to see what was going on. And, and they, they were asking me all these questions. They were saying, you know, we need to know where are you coming from? How long are you here in Detroit? What are you here for? And I was very brusquely saying, I've got to catch my, my rental car. And I had no idea what they were doing. I first thought that maybe they're taking some survey and I don't have time because I got to catch this bus. And they kept asking questions. And then I said, why are you asking me these questions? They said, we're with the DEA. We need to know where you're coming from, what you're here in Detroit for, how long you're going to be here. They had all these questions. And at that point, realizing that where they were, I told them, I'm, I'm with the New York Times. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a story. I'm here to interview people. I'm coming in from Chicago. And I thought that that would be it. And they ended up following me all the way to the rental car bus. And they actually kept me at the base of the rental car bus while all the other business travelers were on the bus watching and wondering what was going on. I get on the bus and they get on the bus with me. They track me onto the bus. They sit uh, directly across from me. And there I am being surveilled and judged by them and all the people on the bus. It was disheartening. It was frightening. It was humiliating. It was demoralizing to see everyone on the bus was looking, glaring at me uh, because this whole process had held up the bus and they didn't know what, what this was about. I didn't either. And I was the only uh, person of color on the bus, the only African-American, and one of the few women on the bus. So I stood out and, you know, you could feel the, the anger, you could feel the tension uh, there. I felt so awful to be in that situation and I just, they were looking me up and down and so I just pulled out my notebook. I did the only thing that I knew to do. I told them I was a, a reporter and then I did what I what I was. I mean, I started to take notes. I, I wrote wrote down what what they looked like. I wrote down what they were doing. And I think something about that changed the atmosphere. Uh, I was proving what I was. And by the time we got to the uh, rental car lot, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if they were going to continue to trail me. But I rose to get off of the bus, and they said, "Have a nice day." And I went on to wow. try to find my car. But the thing is that that was so demoralizing and disorienting. And um, it took a very long time to recover from that because all the other people on the bus could go about their business, doing whatever they were doing. And I was still there left trying to contemplate and figure out what was it that just happened in that case. Well, I think many people look at celebrity or financial success as ascending the caste system. You're successful, well, you're, you know, traveling with your New York Times credentials and your papers, and you look like you're successful, what success looks like in, the, in this country. What do you want to say about people who say, well, if you are successful, I am successful, how can you claim that there's a caste system if you were able to overcome that? Well, the thing is, as I've said about class, if you can act your way out of it, it's class. But if you cannot act your way out of it, it's caste, meaning it didn't matter how it was addressed. It did not matter what I said I was. It didn't matter that I had a notebook. It didn't matter that I carried myself in a certain way or spoke in a certain way. They saw one thing, which is getting back to this pillar, which is heritability, and, and made assumptions on the basis of that. And that's how caste can insert itself in the unlikeliest of moments. On page 107, you write that in the winter of 2013, the Academy Award-winning actor Forrest Whitaker, a distinguished middle-aged African-American man, walked into a gourmet delicatessen on the west side of Manhattan to get a bite to eat. I won't finish that story yet, because when I read the story in Isabel's book, I sent an email to Forrest 
I played his wife in The Butler, y'all remember, and uh, uh, asked him if he'd like to join our discussion on Cass. So, Ben, we're going to excuse you for just a moment to bring in Academy Award winning actor Forrest Whitaker, who's going to take your screen. Hey, Forrest. Hey, it's good to see you. Good to see you. So, Isabel writes about this in her book on page 107. Tell us what happened to you that day in the New York City deli. I was going uh, into the Milano market there, over up in one side of Heights, and I went inside the store. I was trying to go get something to eat, something quick to buy, because I had a meeting. And I went uh, down the aisle, and I was looking on the aisles and trying to find something right, but uh, I couldn't find anything I wanted, so I decided to go, so I was gonna leave the store. So I was walking out of the store, and someone put their hands on me, grabbed me, said, stop, and started moving their hands all up and down my body, risking my body. I said, hey, what's going on? What are you doing? What are you touching me for? You know, he said, you stole something. I said, I didn't steal anything. I didn't, I didn't take anything, you know? And so he's like, my bad, I'm sorry. You know, uh, my mistake. I said, no, it's the it's, it's, I need to speak to your manager. I need to talk to your manager and talk to him about what's just happened. Talked to the manager and I said, look, you know, this guy is risking me. I didn't do anything. I'm here in the store. You know, I, I got angry. And I said, I'm going to call the police. He, he has no right to be putting his hands on me. So I went outside the door. I got on my phone. I'm going to talk to the police and stuff. And the guy comes outside and starts saying, please, please, I made a mistake. You know, it won't happen again. I, I talked to the manager. He said, I'm going to get fired because of this. Could you please not do this? I got a family. I got kids. And I made a decision. I said, uh, look, you know, you guys got to do something about this here. I won't call the police right now. Said, but this is wrong. It's for you to know. Later, he was fired anyway. And they did, like, do some retraining in the store, I guess. But uh, it was a pretty intense situation for me. How do you process that when it's happening? I mean, Isabel was just telling us about being followed in the airport, and how does it impact you in, in, in the moment and then afterwards? Because I'm sure it's pretty unrattling. So working on that, I just, from response of being frustrated, thrown, well, thrown off, frustrated, angry, you know, then, like, working through that, still keeping some of that feeling and stuff inside, and then trying to figure out, is there some way I can help with the solution so this doesn't happen to people all the time. It's so interesting because, Isabel, we were just discussing about how if you can act your way out of it, actor, if you can act your way out of it, then it's class. And if you can't, then it's cast. And so interesting, you, with an Academy Award for Best Actor, in the moment that this is all happening to you, it still doesn't change the fact that you're stopped in a store and frisked inappropriately. It's degrading, it's humiliating, you know, for somebody to be frisking you in the middle of a store, trying to figure out what to do afterwards, you know, because there's a frustration level of, I can't believe this is even happening right now, and it, it is. You're not going to get away with it, I'm not going to allow it. It's just kind of the way the process goes. Well, thanks for joining us to share that story. I'm glad that you could share it. We were going to be talking about it, so we're glad we heard it from the Forrest's mouth. Thank you so much, Forrest. Walter is one of our readers. Walter was an NFL offensive tackle for the Buffalo Bills. He now works for one of the major bank and financial advisors in the country. And Walter, like all black men I know, including Stedman Graham, you've experienced racial profiling, discrimination, being called the N-word. Tell us about that, heritability in your own life. Yes. First, uh, Oprah, thank you, Isabel. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for uh, this platform and giving a voice to what's going on in America and what has gone on in America for so long. Uh, I can remember very distinctly 
the three times that I have been called the N-word. And the reason I can remember so distinctly when it happens is because it comes from a place of hate. Anytime someone experiences something that is hateful and it is traumatic, it, it sticks with you. Um, the very first time uh, I was called the N-word, uh, I was in Orchard Park, New York. And I, like Oprah, I'm from the South, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, uh, actually went to the same high school as Martin Luther King. It was a Saturday and I was standing with one of the Bill's employees and someone was driving down and they yelled out of the car uh, the N-word preceded by the F word. I felt hurt, you know, it was it was very degrading, it was humiliating, but the person that I was standing with was white and he immediately turned to me uh, and showed empathy and was apologetic for the hate that someone else had shown to me in that situation. And again, it happened recently, I would say, you know, within the past three months, I was driving home uh, and there was a guy standing on the corner and he yelled it out to me directly, looking me right in my eyes and called me the N-word. In my mind, I thought, here I am, uh, a professional athlete who had transcended to the highest level of professional sports. And on Sundays, I could be in a stadium full of people. I mean, and, and if you look at any stadium, college football, pro football, with the exception of Atlanta, um, the stadium is filled with, you know, and don't take this the wrong way, it's full with, filled with white folks. And I say that as a term of endearment. There have been other situations in college when I was pulled over uh, with a group of my friends in a car, there were four of us, uh, and I went to school in Michigan, and it's really cold in Michigan, <laughs> and we were pulled over by the police. And as we were pulled over by the police, he took the driver's license of the person who was driving the car. He didn't state why we were being pulled over. Uh, when he came back to the car, he made all of us get out of the car. And at that point, he told us to sit on the ground and sit on our hands, um, which was humiliating because I've seen other people get pulled over. So we were simply told to get out of the car, sit on our hands, and then they started to search the car. There was no probable cause for the officer to do that. And subsequently, after doing his search, you know, we were all, you know, he gave us all our license back and we were able to go on with our night. You know, in the officer's mind, I feel like he was looking for something. Right? What was he looking for? He found nothing. Here are four student athletes who are attending a university uh, to get an education to further ourselves and our careers and you know, to be able to transcend into the next class or, or even just make our parents proud. And you know, officers are profiling us as if we're doing something wrong simply because of the color of our skin. Let me ask you this. How does it feel, or did it feel to you at the time? When I was reading about your story, it reminded me of so many of the performers, uh, African-American performers, who could, you know, perform in a club, but then couldn't sit down in the same club, including Hattie McDaniels, who won the Oscar for Gone with the Wind, but wasn't allowed to sit at the table with Rhett Butler and the rest of the cast and also Jesse Owens, who comes back from winning the gold medal and is going to a celebration at the Waldorf, has to ride the freight elevator and isn't allowed to be in the same space as the rest of the guests. How did it feel to you being cheered in a stadium filled with people who are cheering you and then you come out and those same people look upon you as the subordinate cast? and you know that is happening. It's saddening, but I would also say for me personally, it did not affect 
how I feel about myself. It did not affect the self-esteem that I have for myself. I, it did not affect my self-confidence and what I believed that I could achieve yeah. and my self-worth and my self-value. It's just something you accepted and had to deal with it, right? Is it just something you accept that it's here and you're going to have to deal with it? Yeah, I accepted it and I had to deal with it. Uh, and I truly believe that love and kindness is something that could conquer hate. When honestly, you know, I feel bad for them because what is it that they don't like about themselves where they go out of their way to, you know, call me out on a street, someone who they don't know that they just assume. Uh, and, and I guess it's a part of that, the caste system where it's like, well, I'm gonna tell this Heritability. person, I'm gonna tell this yeah. black man, I'm gonna, yeah. you know, put him in his place. <laughs> I wanted to say that you also related to a story in chapter five of caste, the chapter titled The Container We Built For You, uh, where Isabel writes about the black man who named his daughter Miss. Miss Hale. Yes, that if there was one thing he would do, he would make uh, the dominant caste respect the next generation is in line because he had watched his mother be called by her first name by even little children and disrespected. So he decided to stand up to the caste system by naming his firstborn daughter Miss so that uh, he would give no one in the dominant caste the ability to, to call her by any title other than that. Why did that resonate so with you? Yeah, that resonated with me because my grandfather, his name was Sir Walter Stiff, and his name he wore as a badge of honor. It was Sir Walter. He was born in 1916, and it was a very popular uh, thing that African-Americans did at the time to garner the respect that even though you were born into this lower caste, that a white man will still have to respect you because they will call you either boy or your first name. And his first name was Sir. And when I read about Miss Hale, uh, I called my aunts to ask more questions and inquire about my grandfather. But interestingly enough, what I didn't know was that my grandfather wasn't the only one of his cousins that was named Sir. There were three cousins that were named Sir. But at the first opportunity they had, they changed their name and removed the sir because of the scrutiny, because of the hate that they faced because of their first names. Wow. Uh, and I thought that that was very interesting that my grandfather kept the name sir and people addressed him as Sir Walter, but that there were also members of my family who had the name sir, but removed it because of the amount of hate that came along with that. Yeah. Imagine someone in the, the elite cast you know, cast, having yeah. to buy the, the dominant you, call, cast. Yeah, rather to, than call you that name. Call you sir. This is very common, though, what he's talking about, Isabel. Uh, I know you know this with all of your research, that people did that time and time and time again so that there would be some level of dignity and respect given to their children. Well, it was a custom uh, during the, in the Jim Crow South for 100 years or so uh, after enslavement where African-Americans would not be called, specifically would not be called Mr., Mrs., Sir, Ma'am, all of the honorifics were denied them. And they would, they would be called other things, auntie or boy, that were demeaning and dehumanizing. Uh, and that was all part of maintaining one's place to keep people in their place so that they would not even dream of becoming anything more than that. And so when people, when they had these other names, 
it could be dangerous because it, you could be seen as sassy or stepping out of your place or of, of yeah. uh, by your very name confronting the caste system. People might not even believe you. They might think you're getting smart ahead of yourself or ab above your station. All of these things could, could be dangerous, but at the same time, it was a form of establishing one's identity in spite of the caste system. Just to be named that would be insulting and would feel like you were stepping out of your place. Anu, you wanted to say what here? So one thing that the book has really made clear from these first two chapters on origins and heritability is there's the story of the dominant caste. And, you know, a lot of scholars and activists have been talking about, you know, we need to imagine a society without whiteness. Um, so that white skin is just like having big feet or small ears. So my question was, like, really thinking about this, like, in your research, have you found any precedents for a movement of dominant caste people who defy the caste system? And if not, like, what incentives would enable such a movement, particularly at a time where we're living right now? Mm -hmm. Interesting question. That is such a great question. I think that during the civil rights movement, we saw courageous examples of people who would be identified as being uh, dominant caste, who put their lives on the line among, uh, in, in the, uh, the protests, you know, the Freedom Riders, um, Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, who risked their lives to, uh, to be on the front lines of equality and, and justice for, for the subordinated caste. And so those are people who did not see these barriers and saw their fate and saw that they had a stake in the lives of people that they had been told were beneath them. Uh, and, and that's where we can see people who can break free of that. I would say that there is a cost to everyone in a caste system. That's one of the reasons I've written it, is to let people know and to, to show that there's a narrowing of the imagination, a narrowing of the heart, when you have such a deep investment in maintaining one's place that could be an artificial place. It's based not on what you've done or what's in your heart, per se, but it's based upon what you've inherited. It's inherited ranking that can be taken for granted and taken as an entitlement. And when that happens, then it can narrow the imagination and the generosity of spirit of people who, who have a deep investment in maintaining that. Thank you. Erica says she grew up in a family that believes that they are inherently better, or as we learn in caste, that it is their birthright, heritability, to be in the upper caste. Erica, there was a time in your life when you say that you believe this too, but now you're trying to break the cycle with your own children. So you really related to this pillar of heritability. You really related to heritability because you have lived it and are living with it in your own family. So what are you doing now to break the cycle? So I have some close family members that I think that I grew up with that I think that they, for all intents and purposes, believe that they really are good people and they don't believe that they are racist. And I grew up hearing things um, about different groups in, in the subordinate castes. Um, honestly, I grew up in a part of California where there weren't a lot of black people, um, but the majority of my town was Hispanic, mainly Mexican. and. The people that were in my life would say things about the Mexicans and and how there were too many and how you know they weren't there were there there was the I guess the feeling or the the words that they would say would lead you to believe that they that Mexicans or Hispanics or whoever is lazier they're not as smart as they're not as good as and that was what I grew up with and 
And those family members still believe that. One of my family members will drive across town rather than go to a Target near her house because supposedly more Mexicans shop there. Um, and an, another family member won't allow the female workers who work with him to speak Spanish when they're just the two or three or four of them sitting together and he's not even in the room. And um, personally, I lived in, um, I lived in Brazil. I speak Portuguese uh, fluently, but whenever I was with other Americans, it's more comfortable to speak English. I understand why they would want to speak their native language when they're together. And that can be seen as a microaggression to not let them be who they are and be comfortable in the space that they're in. And so in the last probably 15 or so years, I honestly, starting in my early 20s, I started to discover that I had these, these unconscious biases. Actually, um, not to sound like a creepy fangirl, but there was um, an episode of your show that talked about um, there was a, a test or an exam or assessment that you could do online where you would see faces of black people and faces of white people and the way that you responded told you whether or not you had this had an unconscious unconscious bias toward black yeah. people and i was like well i super yeah. i super don't so i'm going to go do that and i'm going to prove to myself that i'm a really good person and i don't have any of these terrible un unconscious biases and surprise i definitely did and i thought well that's you know that's not possible can i, I read can, all, can, all my favorite can, can books i stop or, you for a moment because yeah. i'm always curious sure if you're raised in an environment where disparaging language is always spoken of the other of the middle caste or subordinate caste what story do you tell yourself about you are not like that how, how do you tell yourself that you are not impacted by that if you grew up with that for me, I, I actually had a really, really amazing um, English teacher in high school who broadened my horizons as far as literature that I read. And it was around then that I started studying the lives of people from what would be called the subordinate caste and trying to understand. And then, um, so I, I thought that, you know, well, I read African-American literature and I watch Oprah every afternoon and she's black, so I'm definitely not racist. And so I think you just, <laughs> you tell yourself these things and you believe it. And then I would think whatever terrible, I don't know, what do you want to call it? <laughs> um, terrible thoughts about people, or I would, I would repeat rhetoric that I heard and um, like I said, in my early 20s and, and going into my mid to late 20s, I started understanding and researching and educating myself more about other people's lives and their experiences. So you have a question for Isabel. I do have a question. Actually, in um, near the end of the book, when you talk about um, the sacred thread, I really felt like I connected a lot with the with the man that um, the Brahmin man that was removing the sacred thread, and he talks about the overwhelming guilt and shame that he felt for the way that he had lived his life and for the things that had happened in his life, and that's what I feel too. I feel total cliche white guilt about things that I've said and things that I've thought and actions that I have taken in my life, and my question is what do I do with that white guilt? How do I use that constructively in my life going forward um, without 
you know, apologizing to black people who don't need to forgive me because they shouldn't have to, but doing something constructive with that white guilt. Well, that's a great question. Um, I, for one, I would say that uh, a deep reflection, self-reflection on one's life is, is one step toward moving forward without judging oneself, but just accepting that, you know, we are all born into this hierarchy that we did not make. We inherited this hierarchy. The idea of being born into a structure means that we, we can focus in on the structure rather than the feeling, which can get us bogged down and make us feel as if we can't move forward because we're so mired in the feelings. And I want to honor your feelings, by the way. I want to say that I recognize them and I, and I honor your recognition of those feelings. I feel that we can get stuck in those feelings, though, and then they can keep us from being able to move forward. I would like to see people harness those feelings into action, harness those feelings into wanting to know the true history of one's country, harness those feelings into reaching across divides and in whatever way we can, the things that we can do every single day to better understand people who we've been told are different from ourselves, uh, to be able to do the work, the hard work of learning with an open heart and, and, a, and a humble heart to be able to recognize that there are people who are in different circumstances and we have, they too had nothing to do with the circumstances they inherited and to recognize that there are ways to cross those divides and that we are, we're all richer for it. One of the greatest tragedies of a caste system is that we do not get a chance to know people who might be the most wonderful people who we might connect with but we don't get a chance to because of the the you know spatial segregation in housing residentially the segregation in terms of what kinds of jobs people are more likely to have and, the, and then the things that we've been told the things that you, you know for example you said you were told when you were growing up that's a great tragedy that means that people are not getting a chance to know and to learn from experience to laugh and to enjoy other people that they have been told are different from them that's a tremendous loss recognizing that's a loss recognizing our common humanity is one of the things that I think pushes through I'd also like to say one other thing about this idea of being a good person or a bad person. I would love to be able to disconnect this idea that if you have unconscious biases, you're a bad person. And if you don't, which very few people do, very few people do not have them because we're all programmed and born into the society. It's, it's said that a third of African Americans have unconscious bias against themselves. Why is that? That's what caste explains. Clearly, it's not about racism because they are themselves. They were born of a black mother and father. They have black family and they know they may be hard workers and they know how hard they work and how smart they may be and still unconscious bias. And so this is the consequence of being born into a pre-existing hierarchy in which the roles have been preordained from centuries ago. And while they are not as fixed and as firm as they once were, they still are here and we still live under the shadow of them. So the idea of being a good or bad person is not really the point with this. The idea is that we are all susceptible to the programming and the goal here is to try to transcend our programming, to deprogram ourselves. To deprogram the heritability. And that's what you're doing. That is what you're doing, Erica. That is what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Forrest. Thank you, Walter. Thank you, Erica, for sharing your stories today. And thank you, Isabel, for discussing pillar two with us. We're going to be talking about pillar number three called endogamy, which is the control of marriage and having children with someone outside your race. Whether you want to read or listen to the audiobook, get your copy on Apple Books. It's easy. The Apple Books app is already on your phone and your iPad. And then join us on Instagram and Facebook 
at Oprah's Book Club to discuss and connect with other readers. And in October, make sure to head to Apple TV Plus to watch my interview with Isabel about why she was inspired to embark on the journey to write Cast. Bye, everybody. Till next time.